One day I'm walking over the Brooklyn Bridge in 2008, and I'm looking down at these beautiful wooden planks and not only appreciating the fact that I'm walking, in this case I was walking barefoot, on these wooden planks across the Brooklyn Bridge on my way to work, living in Brooklyn, working in the financial district. And it just struck me that not only were these wooden planks just such a beautiful part of the experience of this great monument, but where did this wood come from? And what was the impact on the forests from which these planks came? You may never have considered the Brooklyn Bridge in the same way as Scott Francisco, an MIT alum who's also a designer and systems thinker, nor maybe walked it barefoot. But Scott's views on meshing urban cultural goals and natural ecosystems are vividly intriguing, especially when he talks about this iconic bridge. I'm Nathan Barzi of the Octet Collaborative, and this is Infinite Corridor, the podcast on faith and science featuring conversations with scientists from the MIT community. So today I'm the director of Pilot Projects Design Collective, which I founded 10 years ago. The Pilot Projects motto is co-create a better world. And it's a design consultancy that works on systems thinking challenges in architecture, urbanism, and the environment. The Pilot Project's motto is really intriguing to me. I don't know of another organization that talks about co-creation in its mission statement. Co-creation is something that's deeply resonant with the Christian faith. There's this idea called the creation mandate, right at the beginning of the Bible, where human beings are tasked with stewarding the world as God created it. And this Christian concept of stewardship includes not just caring for the natural world, but also stewarding the next generation born into it. There's a sense that co-creation is connecting people and the natural world. That's one dimension of the co-creation. There's also a dimension that by people coming together and working together, that that is actually a kind of content in itself, that the collaboration that's necessary to create powerful and meaningful objects, spaces, infrastructure is really important. And that our place in the universe is about co-creation as well, is that we've been endowed with these capabilities to, on one hand, be very destructive as we can see happening around us, but also to be part of a constructive solution to mend and heal and steward the environment. Recognizing that power that we have, maybe stopping to think about where that's come from and then moving forward in, in a kind of faith that we can actually do something meaningful, that it's not just meaningless work, that that work is actually part of the trajectory of history of the natural world. We're part of the natural world but we're also uniquely participating in what that is. My professional development was very much shaped by my upbringing, my family life, and the context that I grew up in. 
which had a combination of appreciation of nature and of making things, of study of the world through academic pursuits, and also a faith that saw the world as something created for meaningful relationship. I grew up in Canada, near the largest city in Canada, Toronto, but I spent a lot of my childhood in a summer home north of the city, a family cottage in the lake region where we were close to the woods. I did a lot of canoeing and camping growing up. And my parents were very supportive of that. My dad was a very avid canoe tripper and we took family canoe trips and camping trips. I went to summer camp. So I spent a lot of time out in the wilderness and that had a big impact on the way that I saw the world. And also in the end, a love of forests specifically and, and wood and the use of wood, understanding trees and tree species. And that's all a big part of my life today. Actually, there's a famous tree in our life. It was a tree that my dad grew up swinging in as a kid. It was a giant walnut tree, but it got a disease and had to be cut down. And it was just before he moved from the U.S. to Canada. So he took that tree, got it to a local sawmill, and ended up bringing all of the wood to Canada when my parents moved. So. I grew up at this workshop with these walnut planks in our basement. It seemed like an endless supply at the time, but we would make all kinds of things out of this wood. So the connection between the tree and that wood and the ability to make beautiful things from that wood, I think was a lesson that was just deeply planted. The Reimagining Brooklyn Bridge competition was an outreach on the part of the city to solve some of the challenges currently on the Brooklyn Bridge. Cyclists and pedestrians have been vying for space and as the use has gone up over the last few years, there's been collisions and many complaints that it's really not working in the way that it was originally envisioned. And so the competition was launched to come up with new ideas for how to both respect the history of the bridge, but also to solve some of these new challenges. The Brooklyn Bridge is instantly recognizable and a constantly Instagrammed image. But when it was constructed, it was a risky engineering marvel. The story is so deeply complex that it was worthy of a 600-page book by popular historian David McCullough and the Ken Burns documentary. The bridge was begun in 1869, and it was completed in 1883. I like to remind people that the same year that the first cable was strung across in the construction, which was 1876, was the same year of Custer's last stand. Thank you.
It's an incredible juxtaposition of what was happening in the United States, where you have this great monument of technical progress happening. At the same time, you have the United States government commissioning its army to go out and exterminate the native people of that land. The bridge, when it was completed in 1883, was carrying horse and buggies, as well as a single cable car that was a trolley car pulled by a cable across the bridge. Over the years, the bridge has been adapted to a variety of transit modalities. Cars and trucks, by the turn of the century, were using the bridge. Meanwhile, the promenade continued to be used, and really the experience of the promenade today, other than the fact that it's so congested, is very similar to how it would have been all the way back to 1883. It's the same proportions, it's the same materials. You have that experience of walking up through the cables. However, it has been divided into cyclists and pedestrians, so really Pedestrians get half of the width that they would have had originally, and the cyclists get half. And that wasn't envisioned originally. So what we're doing with our expansion is giving back the whole width of the promenade to pedestrians, adding additional bike space. And then on the lower deck, taking some of the car traffic lanes out and replacing those with alternative transit. So uh, a lane for, for bicycles on the lower deck and a lane for electric assist vehicles on the lower deck. So in fact, we are kind of coming full circle. And that original vision, which included what we now consider more sustainable transportation, we're positioning today's alternative transit, bicycles and electric vehicles, back where those lanes would have been originally used for. We started this episode with a story about the day Scott started thinking about the wood on the Brooklyn Bridge. That's a critical moment in the development of his submission to the city's competition, a plan he calls the Brooklyn Bridge Forest. If you recall, it was 2008 when he started thinking about this idea while walking across the bridge. I knew enough at that point to know this was tropical hardwood. I'm looking at this wood and thinking, wow, what a vast area of forest may have been impacted by the needs for decking this bridge. A few things crossed my mind immediately. How terrible it would be if they didn't use wood in the next generation of replacement, because clearly these planks would have to be replaced every few decades. Imagine how tragic it would be if they used plastic the next time because they were worried about forest impacts, which is a legitimate concern. So I immediately started putting together an idea about could this wood be sustainably produced if you had a model for working with the forest directly. And I guess you could say that the idea for the Brooklyn Bridge Forest was just born in those few moments of thinking about the importance of wood as a material and its human connection, its warmth, its beauty, even its sustainability, but also that the forest to produce that wood would have to be thoughtfully managed and approached with a kind of reverence for the forest. With these ideals, the Brooklyn Bridge Forest Team then established a relationship with a community in Guatemala, a group based in one of the largest intact rainforests in Central America, a place called the Maya Biosphere Reserve. 
This Guatemalan community has developed a progressive forest management plan that allows them to export sustainably harvested tropical timber. Just to give you an idea of the scale of that, there's approximately one tree per acre harvested every 40 years in an area. They'll create a zone for an annual forest management, which will be several hundred acres, and then they won't come back to that area for 40 years, so that it really gives time for the forest to regenerate. And with that model, they're able to generate enough economic return to keep that forest standing, to protect it from fires, from poachers and illegal loggers, and that kind of synergistic relationship between people and the natural world, we really want to support. What I love about talking to Scott is how easy he makes it to understand the value of the creation mandate. It encourages us to see the world as someone's creation, not bare, raw material for us to do with whatever we want, but a gift, something we don't own with meaning and purpose that we don't control. There's a lot of interesting discourse today about the role of humanity in the natural world. And the range of that is from, you know, humans are kind of parasitic on the earth, they're destroying nature, and wouldn't it be better if humanity just finally finished its course and the natural world could regenerate on its own terms. But our point of view is that we are actually participating in a regeneration. We must be participating in a regeneration. We must be looking at the value of these systems, that they're intrinsically valuable. And so I think we can see nature in that way that we really have a responsibility to understand it, to protect it, to learn from it. And that that's really part of who we are and part of our mission here on the planet. The Infinite Quarter podcast derives its name from the long hallway at MIT, running the length of the main building with the Great Dome. Right in the middle of the corridor is Building 7. And if you've ever eaten at the Steam Cafe there, you've also experienced the influence of Scott's design, a project he developed when he was there for his Master's of Science in Architecture Studies. And I recall when this cafe opened right in the middle of my own graduate studies at MIT. So my time at MIT was just an incredible part of my professional development. And the environment was perfect for experimentation and academic support for the research that I was doing. And part of that was to really explore the relationship between hands-on making and the theoretical studies that MIT is so famous for. In fact, my advisor was the director of the History, Theory, and Criticism program but he was very supportive of me exploring theory through practice within the campus context. So pretty quickly formed a band of like-minded students and we were all frustrated by the food experience at MIT at that time. <laughs> Looking around, seeing this amazing international cast of characters, but the food was not, I would say, reflecting that diversity. And so we made it a mission to do something about it and apply our design skills that we were developing and, and had brought with us. It was the type of food, it was the way the food was offered, planned, and positioned for the students, and then how you gathered together to eat that food. So really, the research about physical space 
and community and culture was really woven into the project. In August 2020, Scott's team was awarded first prize for the professional category of the Reimagining Brooklyn Bridge Competition that was hosted by the Van Allen Institute and the City Council of New York. The next steps are for us to begin working with the city. There's been no guarantees that this project is going to happen, but the onus is on us to continue to build the relationships that we've started with the city. Uh, we've been meeting with community boards and others, and we're really dedicated to seeing this project through to completion. I think it's almost impossible to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge and not be in awe of this thing that has been made and the experience of it. The more you dig into the story of the construction, the more astounding it is that it actually got done. So I think the Brooklyn Bridge will continue to live as an inspiration for what is possible. And I think compel us to take that creative energy and innovation that we're capable of and directed towards the challenges that are so real and so much in front of us today. I'm Nathan Barzi, and this is the Infinite Corridor Podcast, a production of the Octet Collaborative, a Christian study center serving MIT. This episode was recorded by Carl Johnson and written and edited by Carolyn McCulley, with production assistance from Cam Jones. It was supported by Upper House and the Templeton Foundation. To learn more about the Octet Collaborative, visit us at octetcollaborative.org. That's O-C-T-E-T collaborative.org.